Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Intimacy Coordinator Vanessa Coffey about the evolution of her role in the wake of the Me Too movement. Writer Dolly Alderton and director China Moo Young on new BBC working title comedy drama Everything I Know About Love. And Screenhouse Productions' Barbara Govan and director Sarah Hardy on their BBC documentary Gentleman Jack Changed My Life. Vanessa Coffey worked as a dancer, lawyer and actor, drawing on these experiences to advise others in theatre about nude scene protocols before moving into television with Star's fantasy drama Outlander. Her role as an intimacy coordinator became more defined in the wake of the Me Too movement and with the boom of unregulated streamers arguably driving growth also of more explicit programming. She spoke to Nico Franks about how her job has changed in the last few years, how the requirement for intimacy coordinators is far broader than advice on sex scenes, and why the present crew crunch being experienced by the industry has a major impact. Hi, I'm Vanessa Coffey and I'm an intimacy coordinator. So obviously that's a role when we first spoke in 2020 that was relatively kind of new to the industry. And now it feels very firmly established and it's now popping up in actual TV shows as a kind of reference point. I was watching Chivalry recently and I saw that's quite an important part of, of that show. So yeah, tell me a bit about how the role has kind of is evolving, has evolved since we last spoke. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the level at which it's expanded. I mean, from 2020, we were seeing people asking for intimacy coordinators, but it was very early days, really. Um, Whereas it has become, in my view, standard practice over the last two years where there's intimate content that's been identified. Producers are now coming to intimacy coordinators saying, we do have this content. We feel we want assistance with it. And that's that's now become the norm. You know, and it's, it's funny, actually, because, you know, I can compare that with theatre and theatre because it was closed during the whole of that lockdown period is sitting slightly further behind I think where where we are now with film and television so it's just it's interesting to see that actually we're starting to see that take off too Um, but it's very different because for the last two years we have been making all of this drama um, which has been fantastic because film and television have been able to stay open with their their budgets and everything else that's allowed them to do that. And what are some of the projects that you've been working on recently? Um, So since you and I last spoke, um, I've had the pleasure of working on Vikings Valhalla. So, um, and I'm working on them, working with them on their third series now. So we worked on second series and then third series and obviously Outlander season six. So that's gone to air and um, they're shooting the new season of that just now too. And I've also been working on some really lovely projects. Like um, there was a a show called Mercy Falls, uh, which is a film that shot up here in Scotland, as well as um, Falling Into Place, which was a German-Scottish co-production. So, you know, there have been lots of television series, um, No Return, Marriage. There have been things that I've consulted on. And then there have been things that I've had that have been really long projects. So Outlander and, and Vikings Valhalla are both really long series to shoot. And there's a lot of, it tends to be a lot of intimate content. So that's kept me busy. And you mentioned a German-Scottish co pro there how is the approach to intimacy coordinators does it differ from country to country it definitely does and uh, um, they were very honest 
actually. So from the the German side of production, they had never worked with an intimacy coordinator before. That's sometimes not yet the norm. And so it was a different experience. I think it was a very positive one at the end of the day because they could see that it was a collaborative process rather than me coming in and, you know, putting my foot down, as it were, for certain scenes, which was certainly the impression people had two years ago here in the UK was that, you know, the, the intimacy coordinator was the fun police who would come in and put a stop to things happening. Whereas, you know, once people have experienced that actually it is collaborative, it is about getting a really good, authentic product as well as keeping active boundaries in place, people see the benefit of it. And actually it was, that was really positive, but certainly, you know, people did say that they hadn't worked with an intimacy coordinator before from the German side of things. So it was, it's interesting that countries are, I suppose, developing at different, the work at different rates. And what did you make of the representation of the intimacy coordinator in chivalry, if you've seen it? And for those who haven't, it's a a Channel 4 show, um, all set in Hollywood, you know, against the backdrop of the the Me Too movement. Do you know, I haven't actually seen it yet, Nico. And the reason I haven't watched it yet is because I've been too nervous to watch it because I don't know what that interpretation of the intimacy coordinator is going to be. I suspect given the nature of the show and the people who are involved, and it's going to be a comedy, that there's going to be a lot of poking fun at the intimacy coordinator and the intimacy coordination process. And sometimes that can be amazing. So the Saturday Night Live sketch that was done about Bridgerton, I actually really enjoyed that. Um, It did take, you know, it took the mickey out of intimacy coordination as a process in a very fun way, uh, but also kind of identified that there is a process in place that we do put there for safety and security and that when the wrong person does it, this is the result. So yeah, I haven't, uh, you know, if there's something in particular on Chivalry that you think I should watch, I'd be very happy to. Yeah, I haven't seen the whole series, but yeah, there, there's one episode uh, towards the beginning. Yeah, that's um, yeah, kind of similar to to what you were describing. Um, let's go back to the beginning because you've got quite an interesting career journey. So take me through kind of where you started and how you ended up kind of working in TV. Yeah, so um, I did have a strange way into this particular career. So I started well, I started dance when I was very young. So dance had always been part of, you know, who I was and what I did. Uh, But then I worked as a lawyer. So I studied French and law at university and went on to work in law in corporate law and then trained as an actor after I'd worked in law for a number of years because, uh, you know, the creative industries is really my passion. So I had these three seemingly unrelated things, you know, kicking about. And then I was working uh, as a lecturer with the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and a number of ex-students from there came back and said, can you have a, a look, knowing that I had been a lawyer, can you have a look at my nudity rider with me? Is there anything I can push back on with this? What are your thoughts? So we would sit down and talk about those sorts of things. And then, you know, sometimes people would say, I've, I've got a simulated sex scene. Can you help me with that? Like, what should the choreography look like? What are the boundaries? What can I talk to somebody about? And I did in one case have an ex-student ask me if I could go on set with them as well to make sure that the nudity rider that they and I had agreed to um, with the production was adhered to. So I kind of fell into the job in a way by accident, just by, you know, doing things, uh, you know, for for friends or for colleagues. And then, you know, and and Sam Hewen has spoken about this from Outlander. He came to the conservatoire and uh, knew what I was doing with the students 
and said, actually, we could really use one on Outlander, uh, an intimacy coordinator. So that was kind of the, the process and the way in. And so in terms of your first kind of credit as an intimacy coordinator, what show would that have been? Was that Outlander? Oh, gosh, it wasn't. It was actually, it was a theatre production for the National Theatre of Scotland called The Panopticon, where there was a simulated sexual assault that was performed with one actor uh, and, and there was a, it was basically a multiple rape performed by another four actors. So that was the first sort of real credit where I was um, down as intimacy coordinator. But as far as film and television went, actually, I started with student productions before I went into professional productions, because again, it was about doing things that were for people I knew. So it was about going on to student film sets and helping them work out how we were going to do certain scenes. So I, to be honest, I can't actually remember now what my first professional credit was as an intimacy coordinator. It feels so long ago and that sounds ridiculous, but, you know, I've got, I think more than, you know, 20 credits in the last, within the last two years. So it's just, that's the level of expansion, I guess, of this particular role. Is it now a kind of, do you think, an established role such that people could, you know, train specifically to be an intimacy coordinator? Is the kind of infrastructure there for that now? It is. I think that, you know, we as an industry can get better with that, with having sort of pathways in. So there are, you know, if people are interested in training in intimacy coordination, what I generally tell them to do is to get in touch with BEC2 because we have an intimacy coordinator branch as part of BEC2. And through that, people can find out about the different pathways to training. Um, I, in, in any case, I mean, SAG-AFTRA have been brilliant at setting out what the fundamental the fundamentals are in order to consider yourself an intimacy coordinator internationally. So they talk about a number of certificates that you have to have achieved, things like a clean police record, a mental health first aid. They go through all of the, the certifications that somebody would need. And also they talk about the kinds of training they would expect somebody to have in person in the room. So, you know, somebody needs to know about barriers, about modesty garments, about how we work with other departments and what that collaboration looks like. Because, you know, when I was thinking about this role and how much it's expanded, I was thinking about the fact that actually I can't think of a department really that we don't collaborate with at some point you know, even down to, because new departments that have cropped up, like the COVID department, we do have a lot to do with the COVID department and the protocols that are put in place because of the nature of proximity when we're working with actors. So, you know, it's just, it's about knowing all of that and really understanding what a set is like and what the hierarchy is and, you know, that we're a head of department like any other and how we interact with all of those other heads of department. And how is that evolving? We're still in a pandemic. Is it just kind of like second nature now or are there, are there still kind of teething problems? So I, I think the role, actually the, the evolution of the role has been really interesting to me because what I've seen happen is um, that we're being called on for scenes that weren't necessarily previously designated as intimate scenes. So it might be for something that has a heightened level of sensitivity. It might be because there's a torture scene, for example, that's, you know, that's being performed 
and the actor, you know, on a big production in film and television, as you'll know, a director doesn't tend to have a great deal of time to spend with the actor once they've done that scene because they're on to the next and really swiftly. So they check in with the actor to make sure they're okay, but then they're on to the next thing. Whereas an intimacy coordinator, as intimacy coordinators, we've got a process, you know, where we can, we're taking somebody through how to safely go into some of that work and then how to safely come out of it to de-roll at the other end. And we're really given that space by production. So some actors had asked if we could employ the same processes and practices for intimacy as we would for some of these to apply them to other scenes. So whether that was a torture scene or whether it was because, you know, there were particular emotional sensitivities, like, you know, there's somebody dying in the scene and somebody has had somebody die in real life quite recently and they want a little bit of extra support um, on set. They're the sorts of things that actually recently I've also been called in for on productions or indeed like where we've got children who are having to sit on parents laps but they're not their actual parents they're the the actor playing their parent um so we talk about consent in that kind of context as well because until very recently people would say to a young actor well, if you just go and sit on that's mum's lap you go and sit on mum's lap you give her a hug you know with no thought as to whether or not that was okay with that young person and so just putting things in place again to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing, that we're all okay with that and that people are feeling comfortable and secure, I suppose, in the work. So that to me has been the expansion. As far as teething issues go, to be honest, I mean, I'm knocking on wood right now. I I haven't seen anything recently that I've thought, oh gosh, okay, that's still a bit of an issue for us. You know, I'm I'm really seeing acceptance of the role uh, and a real recognition actually from people that it isn't just about boundaries. It's also like I was saying earlier about authenticity and and what we can do as intimacy coordinators to help the scene look more beautiful and more authentic. And you spend a lot of time on various sets and over the past couple of years, really, but particularly towards the end of last year, there was a lot of talk about a crew crunch and the fact that production budgets, you know, are having to go up partly Mm -hmm. because of COVID. And there's obviously so many shows being filmed in the UK at the moment, which is great, but there are, is a shortage of talent feels like the wrong word, but in terms of, you know, people on the ground with the, the requisite skills, are you noticing kind of when you're on set, anything like that? Are you noticing, yeah, an impact? So, you know, occasionally, yes, because for us as intimacy coordinators, if we have inexperienced crew, it takes much longer to film a scene. And, you know, we want to make sure that those actors are doing the scene as quickly as they possibly can where they're, you know, where they're vulnerable, where there is nudity, where there is simulated sex. We are trying to, you know, make sure that those actors aren't put in a vulnerable position for a particularly long period of time. So it is really important that we have experienced crew and the other thing too is you know you have you certainly notice the difference when you've got an experienced camera operator who's able to really move with an actor so that you know they're they're capturing movement in a really beautiful and interesting way rather than it being you know so so occasionally you'll get a, a camera operator an inexperienced camera operator who captures things you really don't want them to capture 
um, you know, tape that's on the actor's body, for example, so that then we can't use that particular take. So there, there are those sorts of things that start to come out when we sort of, you know, crewing up with less experienced people. That's the reality of it, I guess. Yeah. I suppose that might keep happening until the, obviously there are now schemes kind of being put into place to bring a lot more people into the industry, which is great. Obviously, yeah. it's going to take a bit of time. Yeah, it will. I mean, that's really exciting that those opportunities are there and that we are seeing so much filming, as you were saying, in the UK. I mean, the, the level of expansion in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, you know, the whole of of the UK it, we've just seen it I've, I've personally seen it grow in the last two years I can't believe the amount of work that's being filmed here so you know again really exciting and it means as you say we need more people on the ground to actually do the work and yeah am I right in thinking Glasgow is quite a popular destination because it doubles up as quite a lot of US cities is that it right? does it does yes we had we had so many things that were filming up here recently and I was I was lucky enough to work on Good Omens, on the, the new series of Good Omens. And at the same time, we had Anansi Boys, Batgirl. I think pre-production had started for Outlander. So you've got all of these productions that are going, you know, at the same time. I mean, some of those are in Glasgow or around Glasgow. So again, you've got crew and a, a huge number of people who are coming to, to the city. So yes, and you're right, it does double quite often for New York. So, yeah, it's it's a busy time. And you might be a good person to ask whether or not, because of streaming, and obviously their streamers can kind of, for want of a better phrase, get away with a lot more than a lot of traditional broadcasters. But obviously that might change with, with Ofcom regulation coming in. Are you noticing that shows these days are a lot steamier and is that is that a welcome thing? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I, I suppose people feel more, I, I, you know, and I, I wonder this is a little bit chicken and egg. I think people feel more comfortable writing scenes when they know an intimacy coordinator is a possibility. So they know that they can write that intimate content because they feel confident that that will be dealt with appropriately, I suppose. So yes, to a certain extent, I think we are seeing that. I think because, yes, you're right, and the, because there are so many streaming platforms now all competing against one another, uh, that there will be that continued increase in, in intimate content because it's one of the things that people tune in for, you know, so, and I think that's that's the reality, particularly while we we're in COVID. I think people were so starved of human touch that actually human touch in all its forms, so whether it's kissing, intimacy in any of its forms was something people spoke to me about about really craving during COVID, just watching it. And finally, and we might have already covered this, but would you say there is a kind of application or moment that you can kind of kind of pinpoint as your kind of big break moment? Or was it a bit more of a kind of gradual process? Look, I think it's been it's been very gradual. I have to say that, you know, Outlander has such a huge following internationally and it has so many intimate scenes and such wonderful performers that, you know, who are, are very generous and um, you know, I've been really lucky to work on that series that that probably, you know, has, for want of a better phrase, been a, a big break for me, um, you know, people looking at my work more broadly. Vanessa Coffey, speaking with Nico Franks. Everything I Know About Love is a romantic comedy drama about a group of 20-something girls growing up together in London. Produced by Universal International Studios Working Title Television and created by former Made in Chelsea story producer Dolly Alderton. 
based on her best-selling memoir of the same name, the show debuts on BBC One and BBC iPlayer this week and is directed by China Mu Young, whose credits include Sky Drama Intergalactic and ITV's Harlots. Alderton spoke to Ruth Laws about how her experience informed the adaptation, while Mu Young reflected on bringing the script to life and the use of intimacy coordinators. I just wondered how the process of writing the screenplay was different to your other writing. Did it flex different muscles? Yeah, it was totally different. It was it was done in a team, first and foremost, which is not what writing a book is like. When you write a book, well, the way that I write books is I'm kind of, I pitch it to my editor and then we work out what the kind of general um, kind of direction of travel is. And then I just go away for six months and basically become a Yeti and then emerge at the end (laughs) with a book. And then she gives me notes and I redraft it. Whereas um, I was working like every day with um, executives um, at the beginning stages to work out you know, exactly scene by scene what it was going to be. And then when China came on board, China and I really worked on the scripts together as well. And um, what input did you have in the script, China? Um, uh, it was sort of two parts. I mean, firstly, they were in really good shape. I had the first four scripts, I think, when I came on board, or first three yeah. at least, and then really detailed outlines for the rest of the show. So they were they were in really good shape. They were hugely ambitious in terms of number of scenes, number of locations. You know, you feel that in the show. So it was a task of kind of working out how to hone that down and, yes, still deliver that vision. I mean, you know, so some of it was logistical because all the characters were there. And then and then some of it was sort of uh, like stylistic, you know, transitions, how we go from place to place because we're in so many places. And then musically, there was probably that was one of the first conversations I had with Dolly, because originally the soundtrack was the whole budget of the show. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the Rolling Stones and they (laughs) closed the show and Soul and um, Motown. So so a lot of work, you know, creatively, because I I share very similar taste and, and we kind of connected on a vision. Dolly and I sort of, you know, had early conversations about music as well. And why was music so important? important to everything I know about love and what role does it play in the in the show I think well I'm just a a massive music geek and a massive music obsessive China is as well I think for Maggie's character she is incredibly romantic she has a very specific nostalgic idea of the past and London and womanhood and sex and men and um something that was really important was the the memoiriness of the book transferring that to screen that is a massive challenge and that was one of the best things that I learned when I first started working with China on scripts is that China would read these scenes that I had written that often began with montages. And she, I remember you sat down with me, China, and you went, right, these montages, we need to have a little talk about them. Obviously, first of all, because practically it's just like a million bazillion setups that take up the whole day. But she also said to me, this has got to be a perspective-driven show. We've got to be in that girl's head. This is the reason people liked the memoir is that it was so intimate. It was like the reader in the mind and in the heart of this girl growing up. How do you how do you recapture that on camera? Well, in script at script level, my execs worked out a good way of doing that is by opening with voiceover, which I was so resistant to. But I now am really I really am glad I made that decision. And then China just taught me. We went through every 
pre-script. Do you remember, China? And you said, yeah. I'm going to show you how perspective works. And so like a scene that I had written that was like a work party for Maggie and she's really nervous and it's her first work party. A really easy way of getting the audience on side and making it a memoir show is not to do a montage of people drinking champagne, little comedy bits, people dancing it's to start on Maggie's face and she's I don't know let's say we I think in the first draft we had her putting makeup on in the loo and then we follow her out of looking nervous and then we follow her out of the loo we follow her head and then we see everything she sees and then you follow her through the party and it's these tiny little tricks like this that China taught me that made me realize that with every like editorial endeavor that you have on the page, there will be an accompany- accompanying camera meth- like method to help you achieve it. Where the dance sequence is part of trying to capture that memoiriness. Definitely. I mean, for me, one of the things that really attracted me to the to the world and the and the script and the characters was was, was how musically driven it was, but how music and dance that feels so intrinsic to your twenties. I mean, still in, in thirties and forties they are, but uh, they seem so key and and such a vital you know, kind of memory of going out and dancing with your friends. So they were really key and they excited me because there was a whole com- sort of gamut of dance. There was very, you know choreographed dances that Amara learns because she's a dancer and then there's how they dance when they're going out and then there's silly dances that they all put together and learn when they're goofing about home and so there's just all this all all this wonderful layers um, for movement and that was really important to me that we kind of captured that and made that really natural and grounded because choreography is one thing but getting girls to dance in character is another thing so we did a lot of that in rehearsal actually and actually China had the ingenious idea that when we did chemistry um, reads for Maggie and Birdie that the chemistry reads was sort of the last round for working out who we were going to cast that they did their two scenes and then China and I just sort of sat there trying not to look stony faced (laughs) Just the two of us in this like room in the bright light of the day in the working title office. <laughs> and China just put on them um, a Beyonce track and was like, how do you think these two would move together? And yeah, we just, we just got yeah. them to dance. And yet that really kind of weeds out the girls who are, who are just rabbit in headlights. With, uh, you know, and and Emma and Belle actually's look of horror in the first two seconds. And then, and then she embraced it. But uh, Emma just went for it. And you can really see an actor's willingness to drop all everything and just be really vulnerable and silly and fun and we immediately knew which girls we were going to go for once we saw them dance how was the casting process for both of you because obviously they're characters based on you dolly and your friends that must add an extra complexity when it comes to finding actors yeah i mean china can um please feel free to contradict me on this if i'm wrong china i might be wrong i think that by that point I had managed to get a bit of dispassionate distance from from it all. I just because it had been such a long process in development. By that point, I really did think of them as people once removed from me and my friends. The the trickiest girl to cast was definitely Maggie, and it's because she had to play so many layers to make sure that she could be flawed as well as likable, and that the audience could see into her heart when she was making mistakes. And I remember China said we. Really really were struggling to find her and I remember China you said what we're looking it just when you said this thing it really unlocked it for me you said what we're looking for is a girl like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman or My 
best friend's wedding. One yeah. of those. Meg Ryan. It, it, it's one of those that, that you innately just fall in love with. And even when they're behaving badly or, you know, they're naive or, or whatever they're doing, you're still behind them. And I think we yeah. can them It's those like warm, like very human, but like gorgeous, lovely rom-com leads that just, yeah, as China says, make mistakes, but you go with them. That's And that's such a rare quality, actually. There's a reason why there you can only really name two of them, Meg Ryan and Julie <laughs> Roberts. <laughs> Um, the other thing I'm really interested in, Dolly, is obviously you worked on Made in Chelsea, and that's also included in everything I know about love with airs and graces. Um, how did working in structured reality inform, uh, you know, writing a drama? That's the montages, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the montages. I remember explaining to China, I was like, oh, I get it. I was like, let's see, the way we did Chelsea is we'd always start with montages. Um, that's why it was a hangover from that. Um, yeah, I think it's so different, obviously. Um, main Chelsea wasn't scripted as much as people like to tell me that it was it, it wasn't um this obviously is so it's it's much weirdly like show running my first drama on BBC one was easier than being a story producer for <laughs> made in Chelsea because made in Chelsea is like you know you're you're not you can't you're dealing with the variables of real young humans and you can't really plot anything actually all you can do is predict um but I tell you what it did do, um, which has really helped me with writing stories. Every episode of Megan Chelsea, we would loosely try and get a structure together in our heads of what the A story, B story, C story and D story was. And I think that as a young creative, that was a really, really good training for me with the science of story. How many scenes have to occupy? What's an appropriate amount of scenes to occupy a certain level of story in terms of where it is in the premium? And I think that it's it's helped me with that. It's helped me work out how to shape things. How important was it that the show was set specifically in 2012? Um, and how did you create the feel of that in your of that year in your directing, China? So Dolly, I mean, Dolly can talk about it as well in terms of the setting of it, 2012. It, it, you know, her generation was the last generation of it, it being kind of growing up without uh, social media. So that that specific period of 2012, even though it's only 10 years ago, is different to the next generation after that and that experience. So that was one sort of, you know, the spine of, uh, of that. And then for us, it was just really exciting to set something. It was, you know, we call it a period show. But I mean, it, it is a period show because when you look at what people were wearing in 2012, it really dates. Yes. So we were really rigorous in our reference and research and detail about fashion and our costume designer, Matthew Price, and Janet Horsfield, our makeup and hair designer, and Charlotte Pearson, our production designer, were just, you know, really detailed in all the reference they pulled together in whatever bar or restaurant or, you know, when we're doing the girls' house of what 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 should be in, in and around the girls and what they should be wearing. And it was also really important that, you know, the girls aren't cool. They're not this sort of aspirational, slick world. It, so so there's it, it was just really lovely to be slightly rough around the edges with it as well. And the same with, you know, the bars and the restaurants. Dolly would be very detailed in scripting where those places really were and then sometimes you know when it was Camden Blues Kitchen or whether it was Dingwalls or XOYO that then sometimes there would be what's the other one we had like club nights where we'd look at all the club nights across the show and we'd like hang on we haven't done that look we haven't yeah. done a kind of hippie vibe or that night and all those nights that you 
we sort of homaged them visually rather than trying to do carbon copies of of, of the bars. So I wasn't like looking for exact re- replicas. It was almost like we kind of going to homage the Holy Arms rather than try and make, you know, rebuild that or find a pub that looks exactly like that. It was the ethos. And then that informed the music and the choice of crowd, all the essays, and then, you know, everything else about about the scene. So that's sort of where we went. It was a lot of fun to do it in there, you know. China used to live, China used to be like, a Camden-ish girl um and that Short part farm. Of, <laughs> farm. and that part of North London you know we both grew up in North London and we we both were like knocking around there at the same time so um I felt like that we there was this like rigorous understanding of like the specificity of Camden so if you look at the essays in particular China was very good at finding Camden specific essays so the people who are behind the bar pulling pints the people who are dancing in those like Camden Blues Kitchen places, those Hawley Arm places, those very specific North London watering holes. It's like there's a reason why they all look like. Yeah. Yeah. And you certainly, I think you always spot that and feel that in in, in the backgrounds of places. So that that was another thing that we did. Did you, so did you shoot much in Camden and are there any particular filming locations that stand out to both of you? So it was a regional uh, BBC spend. So we were based and our studio um, was based in Manchester and we shot in an around Manchester and then we had a period of time in London doing key work in Camden central London from result a lot of north London and then and then in around uh, Manchester and then we also went to Liverpool and New York um, and any like locations that stand out for you Dolly I was so nervous about not shooting it in Camden because it felt like Camden was this for, you know for children born in the 80s late 80s who grew up in the 90s Camden was this like mecca and there was something really important about understanding how uncool and like bright lights, big city, wide eyed the girls were and how suburban they all were and how provincial they all were, that they moved to Camden like the minute that Camden stopped being cool. Like, that was a key to their character. So as an ensemble. So I was very, very, very nervous about not shooting it in Camden. And then the like few nights we did shoot in Camden were, I think, the most stressful nights of my entire life. <laughs> How come? Just because of all the people and it's hectic, and and it, and also it was just in in one of those breaks in lockdowns. So you know, everyone just it, there was a sort of period where it, it just lifted, and it felt like it was a reprieve. <laughs> and everyone was going out, and I know Soho was like that as well. It was carnage. So you know, you're shooting nights in Camden, and you have the great British public out for a night out, and they've not been out for six months. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was quite larry. But yeah. I suppose it kind of adds to the atmosphere of the show, though. That's what you wanted to capture. Yeah. Handy yeah. extras. Yeah. <laughs> there was one scene that we did with, with Belle Powley where Birdie was going walking. It was such oh, a simple shot. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. walking to Camden Town um, Tube Station. And it was the number of obstacles in the way. So it was on a Thursday night at, you know, 11 o'clock in the evening we were doing it. We had a drunk man with a trolley he come into the middle of a shot and refused to move. We had another drunk drunk man throwing pizzas at all the artists, all the essays. We had people throwing firecrackers down onto the camera ops. It was so intense. It took such a long time. And I remember the amazing third AD, who's from Manchester, just looked at me and went, do you really live here? <laughs> And it was, yeah, it was, um, I'm so glad though. It, all those scenes that we did in London, particularly in Camden, were really stressful to get, but I'm so glad we did them. And like far and away, my favourite shot of the whole series and the most emotional 
time filming was uh, when I like woke up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. in pitch black and I walked, put my boots and my big coat on and I walked to Primrose Hill and I looked up at Primrose Hill and I saw like our sound guy pushing the, the trolley up Primrose Hill and I got up there and it was like hundreds of people all in their big coats and we were just waiting for the sunrise and that, and you know, and then China made the very brilliant decision of getting a drone shot and that was, um, yeah, a huge moment. It was moment. really magical, actually, yeah. because we, were for- we weren't forecast good weather. And, you know, with I knew our, our producer, Simon Loney, from prep, all the way through prep, he kept saying, we're going to shoot that amazing dawn at- in Primrose Hill. And I was like, yeah, the amazing dawn where it will be raining <laughs> <laughs> and there will be no sunrise to see. But And we've only got one shot at it. And it sort of the gods, the weather gods shone on us because it was beautiful. And, you know, the girls all just were amazing because it was very dewy and very cold and wet. And they just went for it and had such a lovely time rolling down the hill. And it, it, was, um, it was one of those lovely moments where it all comes together. Excellent. Um, and I've just got one final question. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the set sequence, which I think is at the start of episode three. Um, so I've got that incorrect. There's quite a lot of set sequences. <laughs> quite a, a lot of them. I've watched uh, Tinder sequence in four, and then there is a note, and then there's um, a board as well. I yeah, I was just wondering about how how you used um, intimacy coordinators. Uh, so we used uh, an amazing intimacy coordinator called Enric Ortuno. I've done quite a lot of sex scenes, uh, pre-intimacy coordinator and post, and now thankfully that you know it's brilliant that that, that we have them in the same way you wouldn't do a stunt without <clears throat> a stunt coordinator. You you don't do intimacy w- without that at provision, and it's fantastic because I can you know do my vision, discuss my vision with the the cast and then and then they um are there as a point of to, to you know to to help assist that when maybe an actor wants to do something but that they're, they're nervous about exposing a part of their body or that it's all about consent and it's fantastic because then you have a, you know I previously have always been you know very careful to make sure that our you, your actors are, are super comfortable with a- anything they're simulating but part of it is they facilitate you with just this language and structure of doing it and also all the bits that I don't want to get involved with like the pads the modesty garments all of those bits are technical in the same way I wouldn't want to talk about which stunt mats that <laughs> the stunt corner is going to they deal with that and so that's fantastic because previously it's kind of been you know you talk with your first idea and it's it's great and there are a lot of sex scenes and to me they're just like dialogue scenes or stunts you have conversations about what that dialogue scene is you know it's it's a dialogue scene but it's physical so uh you know is it fast is it urgent or is it slow and romantic and intimate is it connected all of those kind of conversations and then you block it through and then you choreograph it and then it's all about that choreography being just as it is they can then make it real because it's it's so structured and you also talk really explicitly I think that's a big thing that I've developed over the last few years is talking very anatomically and specifically because as soon as you take that taboo and you don't use slang or 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 kind of you don't tiptoe around things actors actors understand and then it's much easier to choreograph and it's much easier to direct for everyone and something that I learned with with working with a director as amazing as China and you know I've never like I've only ever written sex scenes in novels where you don't have to that's the end like you don't have to execute it you don't have to get people to do those things China is enormously respectful of actors and she was 
you know, there was actually much more sex that I wrote in the we first draft. Of scenes. We cut a lot of them. And China really made me realise, like, what it is you're asking of an actor when you're asking them to do intimacy and what is appropriate and what isn't and what would be too much to all shoot in one day. And, you know, all those intricacies and technicalities that I didn't understand. And actually something that I that I really learned with with writing sex scenes is they were the only scenes where I would write them China and I would work out like what the tone we were aiming for was and then basically it was in China's hands to like completely do what she wanted with because she had to work with real humans with real boundaries and and you know and this person who was overseeing consent so when I saw I wouldn't be there for intimacy I saw I saw it you know at the very very end and it was always kind of a surprise because China that it was sort of China's scenes those scenes to to work out what was going to work you know there is a lot of sex but I don't think any of it is gratuitous it's really joyful and and about you know and character driven and and earned I think Dolly Alderton and China Moo Young BBC HBO co-production Gentleman Jack made an impact on millions of viewers who tuned into the historical drama, not least those in the LGBTQ plus community who hadn't seen a 19th century lesbian love story portrayed on primetime television before. Based on the collected diaries of landowner and industrialist Anne Lister, as played by Saran Jones and written by Sally Wainwright, the series debuted in 2019 with a second season airing recently. UK-based Screenhouse Productions pitched a documentary to the BBC about women who were prompted to reassess their sexuality by the show and the result was a recent one-hour BBC One and iPlayer film called Gentleman Jack Changed My Life. Screenhouse Chief Executive Barbara Govan and Director Sarah Hardy spoke to Ruth Laws about making the programme during the pandemic, the impact on them and those involved and how the shifting public service broadcast landscape in the UK is affecting indies. What inspired you, along with um, obviously the actual drama, to produce Gentleman Jack Changed My Life? And what is the documentary about? It was when, when I saw the, the drama, it just absolutely knocked me over. But, but there were two things. One was just real excitement to see completely different representation at nine o'clock on a mainstream, in a mainstream slot, Sunday night, the sort of slot that you've seen all traditional period costume dramas in. And then I thought, I felt kind of gutted and, and a little bit, ashamed actually because I thought how must it feel if you know you're uh, from from the lesbian community and this is the first time you've seen anything like this and then what's been going on all these years you know all all those years of not being represented so I I was really I was really kind of knocked over by the drama and also by impressed by Sally landing that at nine o'clock and you obviously had a mainstream audience watching it because the viewing figures were you know millions and then I just started to wonder so how did that feel could it have caught some women by surprise who tuned in nobody really knew what gentleman jack meant at that point and really and nobody really knew that much about Anne Lister. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of us do now i mean i, I did know the story because i you know i live and work up here um and that's what kind of put me on the sense of could we go and find do, do they exist these women who might have been watching it and thought what's what's this what are we representing here and could it possibly have impacted people's lives really deeply and then then we did start to find many 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 women not only in the UK actually but but globally you know who'd seen it and really been affected and, and some of that to do with being able to watch a show in a, in a country or a culture where being their true selves is actually 
you know, quite dangerous, you know, for different reasons. Sarah can pick up, you know, from there sort of who, who we found and what those what those stories perhaps turned out to be. Yeah. So um, there was a team of people, obviously, um, talking because there were there were a, a screenhouse put out an appeal saying, have you watched Gentleman Jack? Have you been impacted by it, affected by it? And um, hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people got in touch not just from the UK, um, but all over the world, as Bob said, because they put it on the fan sites. Um, and the word of mouth in like a, a, the analyst of fan world spreads quickly. Um, and so lots of people got in touch. Um, and some people had got in touch saying, well, it's completely changed my world because I was this person I thought I was. But having watched the program and seen Anne Lister and her portrayal, I now realise that I've been in denial all this time and I'm going to do something about it. Um, and so gradually the kind of researchers um, spoke to people, um, had a chat with who was willing to share that story on camera, on primetime TV uh, with us. Because it's one thing saying, yes, it's impacted me and I'm anonymous on a, um, a Facebook fan group. But it's another thing saying, would you like us to come into your home and film you with your family over the next few weeks, months even? Um, so that was quite a big decision for some people. And we ended up with quite a few people within the UK that said, yes, we're willing to do it. Um, and we tried to get a range of people. So from Kiki, who's like in her early 20s, who's... Um, out with to her immediate family but not out to her grandparents right through to Pauline and Trixie who are in the 80s that had been together um, in the 1960s and then the kind of the social pressures of actually needing to marry and have children kind of split them apart and when Pauline saw Gentleman Jack she thought having not had another relationship I'm going to get back in touch with with Trixie um, and see what happens and to Yvonne, who's in her 60s and a mother of two and a grandmother, deciding that actually she's not been living her true life. So there's a real range. And Sammy in Manchester, who's a lawyer and a carer for her mum. So there's like a range of people that have been impacted. And I think the thing that they've said right the way through is that it's that Anne Lister was a real person and living her life to the true self 200 odd years ago. And why, if they, if she can do that 200 years ago, why can't they now? And that's one tiny piece of representation on television, on primetime television, um, uh, uh, representation and acceptance. I've just talked about the UK people, but then we had lots of Zoom like interviews with because we were filming through lockdown, um, and we sadly couldn't go to Brazil or Israel and Spain to film the other people that had got in touch with us to say, yes, my world has changed. I live in an ultra orthodox Jewish community and. And I've left that. I've left everything behind. Or in Brazil, where people are, you know, it's, it's quite dangerous to say that you're gay. So, um, yeah, I think we so we did Zoom interviews as well with people to hear their thoughts and inputs on uh, on the series. Um, are there any particular scenes or um, moments in the documentary that really, I don't know, struck a chord with you or really resonate? Yeah, I think. Well, there's there's quite there's there's quite a few. Luckily, when Yvonne phones her children or phones her son to tell him that she's, as she puts it, not straight. 
Kiki talking to her grandparents and Sammy confronting her mum. What about you, Bob? I hope what Sarah and the team have pulled off is that this is a mainstream documentary because it's it's intergenerational. You know, the reason people have to come out or feel like they have to come out all their whole lives is because of people around them. And, and so this is a film that has people of all different ages. So we've got a couple in their 80s. We've got Yvonne, who's in her 60s, Kiki's early 20s. Isabel and Katie, I'd say probably early, early 30s couple. Conversations with uh, grandparents, with adult children, with, with friends, with, with uh, colleagues, people they know in their church. So it, it's, it's sort of multi-generational. It's warm. It's really positive. And I just think an amazing thing that the team has pulled off is they've had such trust from the contributors. And I think, you know, obviously that's because they're extremely professional, but it has to be also because you know, in some cases, if you've, if you've just realised just before lockdown that you're lesbian, who have you met in your life? So they were coming out to people who, I mean, in a sense, were kind of asking, oh, what do I do next? And, and so there was this, this trust and um, vulnerability as well, which I just take my hat off to them all because they were happy to share it. But you know, Sarah and Al earned their trust by many visits without a camera, many conversations, you know, until they felt able to share what they did. Shares. I'm probably anticipating another one of your questions, which is about having diverse representation behind the camera and what what that achieves as well. So. Yeah, because you did you did have a an all female executive team. Um, was that a conscious decision? And um, you know, why is it important to have diverse? I know it's asking a very obvious question, but just to get your answer on it, why why is it so important to have a diverse team both on and off camera? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was a conscious decision. And you do, as you know, as as a company, kind of run through that. Well, do we need to have all female, you know, diverse team? You know, isn't it? Is it about just we'll just find whoever we think, and then very quickly think, no, that's that's wrong. And then it's really, you know, it's been an education to me on that as to what it what it means to the contributors, but also what it means uh, and, and what what comes from from the team. I mean, really, Sarah, you, you, why don't you pick that up? Um, well, I think for the contributors um, that were just coming out as, as lesbian or, or gay or not straight, depending on how they wanted to classify themselves. It was potentially the first kind of people that they'd met of the same similar sexual orientation um, and certainly for their families I know for Sammy um, who lives in Manchester her mom Sammy tried to come out to her mom when she was 20 early 20s her mom chucked her back in the closet for 10 years didn't want to hear it and for Sammy's mom she she'd said that it was the first time she'd met any lesbians and that we were okay you know and it's like oh well if you if you find someone like these then I don't mind you know it's like sort of that like acceptance like oh actually it's not the stereotype that I think these people are they seem to be quite normal it was really positive and actually it was a good reminder to me actually of how important that is and how almost that you were like representing a community by not just making a film but representing a community which is a very strange place and I've not been in that position before what was the commissioning process like? Did you have any difficulties getting it commissioned by the BBC really open? Are you finding that commissions are quite open to having like LGBTQ plus content? Um, it feels like every commission is unique. So I, I, I mean, I don't know whether Sarah's got a, a different answer, you know, t- to me. But um, I mean, I've I, I had a fantastic reception to this because it was. <sighs> 
I suppose it, you know, it, it felt it felt both kind of original, it was representational and also mainstream because of the fantastic reception of, of Gentleman Jack, uh, but it also a story that stood in its own right. I think it's very difficult to make proper documentaries um, because they take a lot of budget and you don't know what the outcomes are going to be. Um, I think certainty is something that commissioners feel that they need. And I think the BBC were really brave with this commission because we were finding people and the stories were evolving and we had no idea what the ends were going to be. We had no idea whether people were going to panic and want to pull out or whether they were going to be emboldened. So the BBC commissioning a film is like this, is really brave because it was like, right, well, we've got a start point and we've got a great concept and we've we've got like months and months of filming and we don't know what's going to happen. Are you going to go on this journey with us and are you going to trust that we can make a film and keep contributors on board? And they were brilliant and the commissioner, Emma Loach, was really supportive in that. So I think that's quite unusual and I think documentaries now, they the commissioners, they need to, I mean, certainly for a licence fee, they need to deliver. They can't just waste a licence fee on a, on a hope. So you need to be able to almost know what the outcome's going to be. So you might see that there's lots of retrospective films. So you know that a crime has been committed and you've got to the end, someone's been convicted, you know the answer and you're telling a backstory. It's really rare nowadays to see a film start and not know what's going to happen. And that's what we that's what we all embarked on this programme. And the BBC was sort of, they were obviously happy for, you know, the fact that, that you know, the story wasn't kind of, there wasn't a conclusion. Do you think there'll be more kind of documentaries like that where you don't necessarily know the end? Well, I would hope so, because isn't that a wonderful thing about documentaries? I mean, that is the glory of a documentary, where you're like an observational documentary where you find someone that's willing to share their story, but you don't know where it's going. You think you might have a clue, but you don't know how it's going to finish. And they are the best films, aren't they? They're the best films to make and the best films to watch. Yeah, I think I read a quote, I can't remember, from a documentarian who said the best documentaries are the films that you didn't set out to make. It's yeah. when something really unexpected happens in the course of filming that takes you off into a, into a yeah. different direction. And that's, that's, the, that's the ethos I have as a filmmaker. It's the, well, I... I'm meeting these people and they're telling me that this is what's going to happen, but I'm just gonna, I'm not going to hold them to it. I'm just going to evolve. And they're, they're the moments that are really beautiful, actually, to film. But also, you know, in talking in terms of uncertainty in, in the documentary process, this was all in COVID. Yeah. The commission was March 2020. And, you know, on the one hand, we felt that, you know, the whole sort of tele-universe was falling around about our ears. And I, I actually thought that probably the BBC would just go, oh, do you know what? Should we just wait and see what happens? Because we, we've been having conversations. And so I was getting ready for that. Uh, no. And they they stuck with us. And, um, you know, a process that we thought perhaps in March 2020, that without COVID, we might have finished in, I don't know, we might have delivered before Christmas that year was a lot longer. So it was, it was a journey into the unknown for everybody. Uh, and, and I know, you know, to all our colleagues in television, everybody's been on that when will this end sort of voyage and ha- how will how will we how will we make this without people wearing masks, without it looking, you know, very COVID-y and that, you know, the minute it goes out, people think, oh, well, that was made in COVID. Well, it does not look like that. It does not look like a COVID film and I, and I hope it will be, you know, seen for many years to come. But that, you know, I think that is another great achievement of, of the team, you know, to have pulled that off. And that, that, that actually was, I mean, it was hard for you as a production company to manage that 
budget over that period of time. But for the contributors, it gave them time to develop, for their, for their stories to evolve. And again, that's unusual in, a, in documentaries that are commissioned now, that they're really finite time timescales, whereas this was a really lovely, long period. So, so are we actually saying that, you know, in a way, thanks to COVID, aha, uh-huh. This turned into um, a true documentary instead of a few months to just kind of go, you know, well, back and back. yeah, six weeks to make it. Yeah, no, it's the um, it's over the period. Um, How long did it take to make? Did you in the end? Well, we we delivered in um, was it the end of January twenty two? And if Barb says she yeah. they started March twenty, I'd started thinking about it seriously because I um I sort of co-started a branch of Women in Film and TV in Yorkshire in twenty nineteen. And the organisation said, well, what, what events would you like to put on? I thought, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if we could persuade Sally Wainwright, you know, to come to a location in Leeds? And we'll have a whole chat about how did you pull off this amazing, you know, Gentleman Jack? And um, she was in, you know, she was incredibly generous with her time. So she came into, there was an audience with, and it was really well attended. And people were, you know, the audience was really, really engaged. She's a great sort of, um, you know, sharer and, you know, interviewee. And uh, we also put it live on Facebook. Um, you know, so people in London could could not be left out, and um, and just so people generally could, could listen in. Like, I didn't really think many people who who would know we were even you know, having the event. I found it afterwards. We have about I don't know fourteen hundred people watching on Facebook, and um, some of them were in America because you can get the data. And I thought, wait a minute, that that is somebody is tracking anything to do with Gentleman Jack. People have got some alert going on, and that's what made me think this is worth looking at because it, it's not you know it really has hit a chord and so it was actually yeah 2019 that in the, in the autumn that set me off oh and then the really funny thing was that uh, I started doing a quick bit of research in um in sort of October November and I found that two key players to this whole thing who were going to be organizing lots of events to celebrate Amnesty's birthday which was coming up in were in New York and New Mexico. Even more peculiar was I was standing chatting to them in a bar in Halifax about two weeks later because they, you know, they had already planned to come over. One of them had already been to Halifax. That was the third time since they'd seen Gentleman Jack in the summer, third return visit. Yeah, this, so it was, you could already kind of feel like this is something going on here. And um, so that, yeah, that was, that was extraordinary that the number of people saying, you know, I can't wait to go to Halifax because they found out about and Lister by Gentleman Jack and it's in its national and it and it's global. Obviously you're based in Leeds I and I just wondered what the opportunities are for producers based in the nations and regions and what the industry can do to become a less London centric. Well I've, I've been in the industry quite a long time I'd, I'd, I'd admit to at least 35 years so I, I would say that it's definitely is less London centric. On the other hand you know, I live 10 minutes drive from Channel 4 headquarters and I live a couple of minutes cycle to the countryside. But on the other hand, I could have said to you exactly the same thing, you know, 30 years ago that, you know, I worked for a network broadcaster in Leeds, which was ITV. So, you know, I've lived long enough to see the kind of wheel of television turn turn full circle in that sense, because, you know, it used to be a network centre in, in Leeds. So I've, I've got, you know, sort of slightly 
different perspective. But I know exactly what you mean. I think, you know, it's having key commissioners based outside London, whether that is, you know, more more in Yorkshire, and obviously they should come here, but just having, you know, that that different view of the world. But I think it's I think it is different. For example, you know, you could talk to um, an SVOD commissioner and they might not even ask you where where are you based. They want to talk to you because you've got a good idea. So so that yeah, more more real actual commissioning outside London. Um and I also wondered what the impact of uh, the privatization of channel four and then the license fee freeze means for producers like Screenhouse. Is it something that's concerning you? You worried about sort of fewer commissions? Well we we have got we have got a channel four credit and now as I say, you know, everybody was so there was so much work went into winning that bid by amazing people, you know, to bring Channel 4 to, to Leeds. And it just seems completely illiterate to me to talk about privatising it. I, um, it. It seems completely, you know, it, it, it's almost like before the paint's dry on, on the building, is it going to then just um, disappear because because of a lack of understanding um, <coughs> at the highest level as to what Channel 4 is, is, is doing here. But on the other hand, you know, our company is 30 years old and we've been through a hell of a lot. And if you run an indie, you've got to be resilient. You know, you've got to think ahead. But, you know, from just the bigger point of view, no, we don't, we, we're not in a position where we rely on Channel 4. But that sort of vandalism to what has been ca- a carefully sort of wrought action is just kind of baffling and frustrating. And I just hope it doesn't happen. But we, you know, we, we, will, we will still be here, uh, I'm pretty sure, whatever happens. Barbara Govan and Sarah Hardy speaking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 